everyone. Welcome back to the Note History Podcast. I'm Christina, your host. If you are new here, welcome. Good to have you. If you are returning from episode one, which was last episode, thanks for coming back. It's good to have you. I do recommend that everyone listen to the episodes in order, but it is not required. I will be doing a recap at the top of every episode. The episodes go into further detail and they provide context and lots of information. So that's why I recommend listening in order, but you aren't going to be completely lost if you just dive in. Just a quick reminder, I do list all of my source material in the show notes. I also list links where you can go and interact with some of the information I'm talking about. With that being said, let's get into it. To recap the prior episode, we spoke about Native American life prior to European arrival. Most tribes were illiterate and passed on information via oral histories. We have written history after the Europeans arrived in the form of letters, diaries, journals, and correspondence, which we can reference today. Also, there is growing scientific evidence combating the quote-unquote pristine conditions that existed prior to European arrival. North America was a heavily populated place with a minimum of 200 tribes and languages. I referenced several studies that say Native Americans had an impact on their environment prior to European arrival, and there is an argument within those sources that conditions were better after Europeans arrived and settled. I spoke about two tribes, one from the east, one from the west. From the east, we had the Tequesta tribe, and from the west was the Cocopa. We then move forward in time to speak about the turbulent times prior to the Civil War. By the time of Abraham Lincoln's second inauguration, several states had seceded or left the Union and formed a rival government known as the Confederacy. They raised issues with the Constitution as it stood at that time, and Lincoln himself raised issues with how the United States was made up and how any descending voices could impose their will, and they did so by seceding from the Union, referencing states' rights, which expanding slavery was a point of contention between the North and the South, and the South chose to secede in order to keep the institution of slavery going. Just like in episode one, this episode is going to be split in two. The first half, we're going to be speaking about the forging of middle ground between the Europeans and the Native Americans, and we're also going to talk about violence and conflict. The second half, we're going to be speaking about secession and war and the early phases of the Civil War covering the years 1861 to 1862. I want to preface this first portion by saying that many, if not all, the accounts of the first encounters between Native Americans and Europeans are from the perspective of Europeans because many Native tribes passed on information verbally as opposed to writing it down. Christopher Columbus was trying to reach India from the West in an attempt to establish better trade routes. He did not make it to India and the exact location is debated perhaps somewhere in the Bahamas. Bahamas, and it was claimed for Spain. Prior to Christopher Columbus, the Atlantic hadn't been successfully crossed since the Vikings. In the 16th century, the world was a very isolated place. After Christopher Columbus's successful voyage, more Europeans would follow and claim land for their prospective.
respective countries. After landing and establishing a settlement, the Colombian exchange was set up. The Colombian exchange was an exchange of goods like potatoes to Ireland, livestock such as horses in North America from Spain, as well as diseases like smallpox and syphilis. This massive exchange would have irrevocable impacts on not only the Native Americans, but also the Europeans that were newly settled and the European countries. According to the book New Worlds for All, Chapter 2, disease spread both ways, but the native population in North America was hit extremely hard. As the European population soared, diseases previously unknown in North America, such as smallpox and syphilis, also increased. Estimates of indigenous deaths are conservative. However, the number of deaths would transform the native population so dramatically that their future became uncertain. While scholars disagree, the average number puts the number between 5 and 10 million people in 1492. Then in 1800, their numbers had dwindled down to 600,000. That was in contrast to the European population of the English colonies that doubled every 25 years in the latter part of the 18th century. According to census.gov, the population at the time of the first U.S. census that was recorded on August 2, 1790 and included the 13 states and districts of Kentucky, Maine, Vermont, and the Southwest Territory, which is now Tennessee, recorded 3.9 million people. The second census that was done 10 years later and recorded on August 4, 1800 and includes the states and territories northwest of the Ohio River and the Mississippi Territory, recorded 5.3 million people, of which 900,000 were Black. According to the National Park Service, NPS.gov, in the late 1580s, England attempted to make a colony in what is present-day North Carolina, but they were unsuccessful. They wouldn't try again until 1608 when the Virginia Company received the charter from the newly crowned King James I. The Virginia Company followed precedent sent by other companies such as the Muscovy Company and the East India Company. The Virginia Company was a joint stock venture and so Sold shares. All who purchased shared in the success or failure of the company. In December 1606, the Virginia Company's three ships carrying 144 men and boys set sail. On May 13, 1607, the first settlers selected the site of Jamestown Island to build their fort. The virtual Jamestown site includes first-hand accounts and the general state of affairs of the land surrounding the colony, as well as descriptions of the colony and its history. The first president of the colony is Edward Wingfield, and he was removed from office in the same year he was elected. President Wingfield is going to be involved in one of the encounters I will be speaking about. The book New Worlds for All, Chapter 3, describes the intersection between Native and Europeans as, quote, the clash of Indians and Europeans was a conflict between two ways of life. But even as the protagonists fought to preserve or impose their own way of life, each way of life was undergoing substantial changes as a result of contact with the other, end quote. Interactions between natives and Europeans created what historians call the idea of other. This idea refers to the concept that groups of individuals think of themselves as being separate from other groups of individuals for a multitude of reasons. Natives and Europeans first sought to understand each other through their own lenses of cultural norms and personal experiences, which vary wildly from each other. Karen 
Ordal Kupperman writes in her book, Indians in English, quote, The first response on all sides was curiosity. In England, as in North America, great and fundamental transformations were occurring in the way society and the nation's economy were organized. End quote. Now, all of the new European settlers had a cooperative attitude brought on by these social changes. To them, the new world seemed strange, ominous, and even felt threatening. When encountering natives, the Europeans desired to acclimate them to resemble their own people, and one way of doing that was by converting the natives to their religions. Catholic missionaries from France and Spain attempted to eradicate the Native American customs they defined as quote-unquote uncivilized or opposed Catholic practices. The push and pull between the two ways of life led to conflicts, but also impacted existing hostilities among Native tribes. Native Americans and Europeans would also fight in border disputes that would be resolved by sometimes extremely violent ways. Now I want to talk about specific encounters between Native Americans and Europeans. And remember, most, if not all, of these encounters are coming from the point of view of the Europeans. Virginia was discovered by Captain John Smith in 1607. In 1608, the colony's second year, John Smith led an expedition to the interior into unknown waters in order to find food. Remember, the way history has been passed along for us is information from journals as well as written history of the colony via published writings from leaders or the president. As previously stated, prior to John Smith's expeditions, Edward Wingfield, the first president of the colony, wrote that a lot of men died due to famine and says that, quote, there were never Englishmen left in a foreign country in such misery as we were in this new discovered Virginia, end quote. And yet God had helped them in a way by, quote, putting the fear of God into the natives, end quote, which Wingfield describes and references as savages. Via the Library of Congress, those living in the area where Jamestown was settled had mixed feelings about the arrival of the English in 1607. Native Americans had previous experience with Spanish explorers and prior to the English landing, one of their ships was attacked. The Powhatan tribe had previously experienced Spanish explorers. Despite this attack, they soon offered food and hospitality. The Powhatan leader of the Confederation of Tribes around the Chesapeake Bay hoped that this gesture would also help them absorb the newcomers. As John Smith led his expedition to the interior, during which he was captured by the father of a Native American girl named Pocahontas, sound familiar? He wrote about his experience. Pocahontas's father was Powhatan, and during Smith's capture, he would also encounter the king of Pamunkey. Smith describes both men as kind, respectful, and even says the savages were hospitable, end quote. Smith also goes on to write in his journals that he was untruthful about information he provided to the king of Pamunkey. In President Wingfield's writings, the later abridged version of events that was published and would go on to become the narrative, describes how the king also found Smith to be kind and reassuring with his kind words, and thus a mutual confidence ensued between the men. His writings also describe the natives as savages and brutes who did not show John Smith any courtesy without reluctance. Nevertheless, Smith was set free. The next encounter I want to talk about comes via 
via the writings of Governor Alvar Nunez Cabeza de Vaca. He wrote about his experiences when he journeyed to the Indies twice. In his book, aptly named, Account of What Occurred in the Indies, Nunez tells of his journey in June of 1527. He first landed at the island of Santo Domingo, and during that time, 140 men deserted the exploration, choosing to stay on the island because of proposals and promises made by the indigenous people there. Nunez also traveled to Cuba and Trinidad. Once in Trinidad, he received a correspondence asking him to come ashore. He hesitated, so the natives sent a horse in an attempt to urge him to join them on land. He eventually complies, and that very night, a massive storm hits and his ships and men are all lost at sea. As a result, he stays on the island of Trinidad until he receives new ships and men. After leaving, he makes his way to Florida, where he is approached by the indigenous people, but they were unable to communicate with each other. He writes, quote, They made many signs and threatening gestures, and it seemed to us they were telling us to leave that land. Then they went away without hindering us, end quote. Later, they would go on expeditions and encounter Appalachian natives who acted as their guides. The last encounter I want to talk about happened in what is now Quebec in the early 1600s. It comes from the writings of Samuel de Champlain, and he describes the Native Americans as savages and that there was curiosity on both sides. He also goes on to talk about the natives' desires to trade pelts with the newly arrived Europeans. The Europeans wanted to cut down nut trees that were used by the Native Americans, so there had to be some negotiation, some back and forth regarding the trading of pelts and the cutting down of those nut trees. Reactions to the arriving and settling Europeans varied among the native tribes. It depended on if they had past experiences and the state of the tribes once new Europeans were settling in the land. For example, Nunez encountered both receptive and what he presumed hostile and reluctant indigenous people. Ultimately, both sides did not know of the other's intentions at first. The middle ground that was form between the Europeans and Native Americans was hard to maintain and live with, and it was often more beneficial to one side over the other. After all, Europeans were leaving their countries to travel to a distant land where indigenous people lived for many years in search of a better life. We will continue that on the next episode, but for now we are going to move forward in time to talk about the tumultuous 1850s and the time that led up to the Civil War and Reconstruction. Last episode, we talked about Lincoln's second inauguration and the fact that in March 1861, several states had already left the Union and started their own rival government known as the Confederacy. Now we're going to talk about what led up to that time. By the time of the Constitutional Convention in 1787, the northern states of Vermont, New Hampshire, Rhode Island, Massachusetts, and Connecticut had abolished slavery. Fast forward to the tumultuous 1850s, where possibly the most famous and dramatic event of the pre-Civil War era occurred, and that was John Brown's raid on Harper's Ferry. John Brown was born May 9, 1800, in Torrington, Connecticut. He was an abolitionist, or person who favors the abolition and putting an end to a practice, and in this case, it was the practice of slavery. He advocated the use of armed insurrection to overthrow slavery. On a side note, there is a great show 
starring Ethan Hawke called The Good Lord Bird, where Ethan Hawke plays John Brown. Highly recommend. It is not for children. It is extremely violent, but it is a very good and entertaining show. John Brown was a veteran of Bleeding Kansas. Bleeding Kansas was also known as the Border War and was a series of violent confrontations in the Kansas Territory that occurred between 1854 and 1859. They were fueled by the political and ideological debate surrounding the legality of slavery within the Kansas Territory. Bleeding Kansas was a one-state civil war, and the neighboring pro-slavery state of Missouri was also involved. The conflict included guerrilla-style warfare between those who were for and against slavery. John Brown was an abolitionist who had grown frustrated with the pacifism of the organized abolition movement. As the United States was expanding, issues arose around the question of slavery, and in the first episode, I mentioned Lincoln's observance of issues within how the U.S. was made up and how these conflicts or the voices he referenced would raise concerns and be able to take action on those concerns. People on both sides of the slavery argument were willing to fight for their beliefs. In my readings for this particular week of my class, you had the choice to speak about different violent events that occurred, and I chose to talk about what is known as Bleeding Sumner. Bleeding Sumner refers to the beating of a Republican senator from Massachusetts named Charles Sumner. The incident took place in in the spring of 1856 and was prompted by Sumner delivering an anti-slavery speech to Congress, which some senators took personally. Democratic Senator from South Carolina, Preston Brooks, who used a walking cane, attacked Charles Sumner, beating him unconscious. It would take Charles three years to recover. At this time, the Democratic Party was pro-slavery and the relatively newer Republican Party was anti-slavery. The expansion of the U.S. territory and the lingering questions around the legality and or morality of slavery led to political conflict and compromise. The Missouri Compromise of 1820 laid down ground rules for the expansion of the U.S. territory as well as slavery, ultimately forbidding the expansion of slavery in any state north of the Missouri-Arkansas border. According to the book Slavery and the Making of America, by 1850, tensions had reached a point that the compromise was amended. In addition to the mounting tension that led to the amendments, the non-slave state of California's admission to the Union was also addressed. Changes also included amending the Fugitive Slave Act of 1793, as well as abolishing the slave trade, not slavery, in Washington, D.C. To be clear, the ending of the slave trade in Washington, D.C. did not mean that people were freed. Slave auctions and anything related to the slave trade could not be performed within Washington, D.C but slavery was still going on. Yet the most controversial parts of these actions were the amendments to the Fugitive Slave Act. Via history.com, the Fugitive Slave Acts were a pair of federal laws that allowed the capture and return of runaway slaves within the territory of the United States. The first act in 1793 was enacted by Congress. The second act in 1850 added more provisions regarding runaways and added harsher punishments for interfering in their capture. Basically, it was a tightening of the legal system around the capture of slaves and around runaways to make it easier for those slaves to be returned to their masters. The tumultuous 1850s gave way to the 1850s. 
1860 election that included Abraham Lincoln. The election was made up of four candidates, and the combined opposition to Lincoln's candidacy had almost one million more popular votes. In the 18 free states, Lincoln held the majority, but only gained an additional 26,000 votes throughout the 15 slave states. However, Lincoln's victory in the 18 free states gained him a majority of the electoral votes, which meant that he would ultimately win the presidency. Almost immediately following Lincoln's victory, the southern states began calling conventions during which the logistics of seceding from the Union was discussed and explored. Then on December 20, 1860, South Carolina became the first state to secede and leave the Union in order to become part of the Confederate States of America. South Carolina took the election of Abraham Lincoln, a known opponent of slavery, as a direct threat. Six months later, they were followed by Mississippi, On January 9th, 1861, not to be outdone, the following day, Florida seceded on January 10th, 1861, Alabama the following day on January 11th, 1861, later in the month, Georgia seceded on January 19th, 1861, at the end of the month, Louisiana seceded on January 26th, 1861, Texas brought in the new month of February by seceding on February 1st, 1861, a couple of months later, later, Virginia seceded on April 17, 1861. The following month, on May 6, 1861, Arkansas seceded. Later in the month of May, on May 20, 1861, North Carolina officially seceded. And then lastly, Tennessee would secede on June 8, 1861. During this frenzy of multiple states choosing to leave the Union, citizens in the states of Maryland, Delaware, Missouri, and Kentucky were split in their loyalties. Both the Union and the Confederacy attempted to secure the loyalty of those citizens, which would ultimately lead to factional fighting within those states. In the state of Virginia, the split was so volatile that the western part of the state seceded to form the new state of West Virginia. Within the border states, citizens tended to support the Union. However, men from each state fought on both sides, with the smaller number being for the Confederacy. This was due to the border states' economies being less reliant on slave labor. However, border states did allow the institution of slavery within their borders. President Lincoln had to reassure the border states and avoid alienating them, so he insisted that the waging of war was to maintain national unity rather than to end slavery. As the Union and the Confederacy mobilized in response to the secession, men from both the North and the South volunteered in overwhelming numbers. In this portion of my class, our professor asked us to choose a side, either the Union or the Confederacy, and talk about some of the motivations that led the men to go off to war. I chose to discuss the Union. The number of volunteers greatly outnumbered the men that were drafted. For soldiers who volunteered, the reasons or motivations varied, and it was not just because they were for or against slavery. For some Northerners, their service was meant to help the country from being split in two and thus open to attack by outsiders. Ulysses S. Grant echoed this sentiment and said, quote, Our Republican institutions were regarded as experiments up to the breaking out of the rebellion, and monarchical Europe generally believed that our republic was a rope of sand that would part the moment the slightest strain was brought upon it. End quote. I chose to speak about a soldier named Wilbur Fisk.
Fisk, who enrolled in the Union Army in Vermont and said that, quote, slavery has fostered an aristocracy in the rankest kind, and if it were left to stand, democracy would not survive. I also chose to speak about another man named Walt Whitman, and he also shared a similar sentiment to that of Ulysses S. Grant, in that he sought out and found part-time work that would also allow him to serve as a nurse. He thought the division in the country was a hindrance and that the world was excited to see the internal turmoil and would pray for America's downfall. The fact that the disagreements throughout the country led to civil war meant that the prospects of this new nation were grim at best, and any foreign power with the will and fight could come and topple it. Throughout the war, the questions that loomed were also a problem. What if the Confederacy seceded? What would that mean for the millions that were brought to America against their will, enslaved, and helped to build the economy of the South through their free labor? Also, what would it mean that the majority were able to be overcome by the minority? In my mind, that means that the country would constantly be in a state of chaos. Each person that resides within the country would have no trust in the government because with the right power, anything can be changed. Similarly to Confederate soldiers, there were Northerners who enlisted because they saw it as their civic duty. Patrick Claiborne, Joseph Newton Brown, and Edward King Whiteman of the 9th New York enlisted due to that sense. The soldiers that I found particularly interesting were the Northerners that were upset that anyone would think that they were volunteering just to help free slaves. For them, the enslavement of their fellow man was not even a consideration. The fact that the Confederacy chose to secede, however, and elect their own president was seen as a slap in the face to the great nation, and thus the nation needed to be defended. Massachusetts Sergeant William Pippi felt that way and said, quote, If anyone thinks that this army is fighting to free the Negro, or that this is any part of its aim, they are terribly mistaken, end quote. Others, like John McClurry from Indiana cited fighting for the Constitution and distanced himself from any notion that his service was for African Americans. As the Civil War began to take shape, advantages and disadvantages between the northern and southern region became clearer. The north was much more industrial than the south since the south decided to focus on agriculture to build their economy. Therefore, the north had better transportation and weaponry. Also, the north had a larger population and therefore the union had an advantage when it came to recruitment. And like I said previously, a lot of people volunteered to fight in both the Union and the Confederacy. The South, however, did possess a lot of military training centers and there was a strong tradition of military service. The South had a bigger pool of more experienced officers and better trained soldiers. While the Confederacy had that advantage, the Union possessed a more advanced Navy and a lot of the shipyards were located in in the north. Therefore, the Confederacy only had a skeleton navy. The naval advantage would prove to be of great importance as the Union blockades were crucial to the Northern victory. After the Upper South seceded from the Union, the Confederacy decided to move its capital from Montgomery, Alabama to Richmond, Virginia. That was based on numerous factors like the industrial development in Richmond and the population density 
density of the Upper South. However, the move placed the Confederate capital closer to Washington, D.C., and the Union leadership began to plan for an invasion and capture of Richmond. Something I noticed, a common tactic when you're in war is to quickly attack and either eliminate your opponent or capture your opponent because the longer that time goes on, it's going to require more resources and it also allows the opponent to regroup and potentially mess up your plan. So the Union also planned to attack quickly and attack with purpose in order to defeat the Confederacy. The early phases of combat were in 1861 and 1862. While there was fighting that occurred during the secession, there were many smaller civil wars that were happening along the border and states that were seceding and not seceding. The first official battle between the Union and the Confederate armies took place on July 21st, 1861 near Manassas, Virginia at Bull Run. Enthusiasm in the North was at a level so high that congressmen and other prominent people decided to go and spectate some of the battles, including the battle at Bull Run, which is incredible. I can't imagine the country being at war and we are just going to decide, hey, let's pull up and get a seat and watch some of this action. The Union Army was under the command of General Irvin McDowell, and they had an advantage in the numbers and weaponry. However, the forces were disorganized, and many Southerners believed that they had not only won the battle because they were successful at Bull Run, but the Confederacy believed, hey, we did so great in this battle, we also won the war. The Confederacy was led by Generals Thomas Stonewall Jackson, Robert E. Lee, and J.E.B. Stewart. And the Confederacy conducted a number of successful campaigns, including Jackson's Valley Campaign, the Seven Days Battle, and the Second Battle of Bull Run. These early successes by the Confederacy led the Union to realize that a quick and easy victory could not be obtained, and they needed to rethink their strategy. Hunger and hardships that they would go through during war actually caused a decrease in the number of volunteers. And that's where drafting on both sides um, would come into play. That is it for this episode. So next episode, we're going to get into trade, food, and medicine in regards to the Europeans and their conquest of the new world. And when it comes to the Civil War and Reconstruction, we're going to be talking about the Emancipation Proclamation and Lincoln's tactics for not only trying to win the war, but being successful in the war and some of the things that he did. So be sure to tune in for next episode. Thank you for being here again. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram and we are also on Facebook at The Note History Podcast. Bye.